podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. I'm Toby Tarrant and my microphone is usually a bit clearer than this, but I'm currently in the beautiful city of Bergen in Norway. And with the rubbish weather in the UK over the last few months, I've deserved a bit of good luck. It's basically the rainiest city in the world, Bergen. It rains over 250 days a year. And I'm here for six days. Glorious sunshine all six days. I don't know how I've managed that, but I'm very happy about it. But apologies for the quality of my microphone and apologies for the quality of my shirt as well. I'm wearing a bit of a Daniel Norcross number here, but I'm going out for a few drinks after this podcast is finished recorded. Um, <laughs> Daniel Norcross is... Oh, that is a fantastic T-shirt. Right, Daniel, let's come to you. Daniel has just, um, you know, Superman used to rip open his shirt to reveal the, the S underneath. Well, Norcross has just peeled open a crusty old hoodie to reveal a T-shirt underneath. And it's the evolution of man. But instead, at the final step, rather than turning, you know, sometimes you see the picture and the evolution of man and the final bloke is a bloke like in a suit with a briefcase. Well, this is just a man playing a, a pull shot. And I have to say, that's quite a wonderful T-shirt. Daniel, where did you get it and how do I get one? I don't know. It was a Christmas present. I never buy my own clothes. I mean, I know it's amazing, isn't it? You, you, don't, you, even you, get, think... you don't even get to pick when you wear them, let alone buy them. No, no, I don't. Well, I'm going off to a test match to, to Leeds tomorrow and I've, I've already had the spreadsheets already been written out and I've been running through the different outfits. She's described the different socks and what they mean in words. And I think I'm, I think I'm getting there. You asked how I am. I've just started Britannia. I'm 12 minutes in, which is a, a, a classic tale of uh, Romans stomping around killing Druids in Britain in 40-odd AD with David Morrissey having a Yorkshire accent, basically being the Sean Bean from Game of Thrones look, going, get in the effing boat, whilst dressed as a uh, Roman general. And um, I think I'm going to like it. So it's lovely when you discover something really trash that you're going to enjoy for the next week and a half. I, I love that. So Mrs. Norcross, who dresses him, by the way, if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, she provides him with an entire spreadsheet of what clothes he should wear whenever he goes away for work. But she's out the house. And what does Daniel do with this rare moment of freedom he forges Britannia. <laughs> Glad to see you're seizing the day as always. <laughs> across. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's, what por- that's what porn is for a 52-year-old. You know? <laughs> T- 25 years ago, who knows? But but now I just I, I whack on a new series from Sky. Nice to have a bit of peace and quiet, isn't it? Uh, now, Stephen Finn, uh, speaking of uh, peace and quiet, you must be on a bit of a hundred come down after the glitz and the glam of the hundred. And now you're, you're back at home. How have you readjusted to life? post the 100 and also i mean you must be like more famous than you've ever been with the viewing figures the 100 got you're, you're, you're a household name again we've gone back in time about 10 years let's not get carried away i don't <laughs> think um <laughs> no it's, it's people think i'm peter crouch more often than they think i'm stephen finn which is um a touch disappointing also not a, <laughs> not, a, not a terrible thing now what have i been doing I, i've not been up to much i've let my hair down a couple of times which has been Good fun um, because we were pretty strict with what we could and couldn't do whilst we were involved with the 100 to sort of make sure that it all ran smoothly. So, yeah, I've caught up with friends that I hadn't seen for a month or six weeks or so over the last few days. And then today I've wheeled or pulled my beds out and and gone right in underneath and hoovered and cleaned under there um, and, and sorted those. So I've been on my hands and knees scrubbing carpet all day. So a fairly big come down, <laughs> I would say. 
is. Well, I mean, you know, you did, you did. I mean, you did well to pick a side that was never going to get to the playoffs. So you got extra time off for good behaviour, didn't you? I mean, when was your last game? It was. Oh, I forgot the Oval team now, did so well. Yeah. <laughs> the women did did tremendously. I think you're. Fine. <laughs> I mean, you've got to say Stephen Finn, though. You know, Ashes winner, professional cricketer, just played in the hundred. Andy cleans as well. Is there anything that this man can't do? But that is quite the come down from full crowds and firework displays and sexy games of cricket and being on the BBC to, to hoovering under a bed is quite the come down. Genuinely, mate, oh, let's open with the 100. Let's talk about it because, you know, looking back on the whole thing, how was it? You played in it, you presented on it as well. Uh, any highlights, any standout moments? Just, just what was the vibe like being a part of it as the first ever tournament of its kind? Yeah, the, the vibe was awesome. I mean, the I think the standout thing is how partisan the crowds were in terms of the support that each home team had at their own ground, I think was quite surprising given the fact that they are new teams um, and the way that people resonated and got behind those teams. I felt, especially coming from a club like Middlesex, where you're at Lords and it could be anyone that's playing there. It's just 28,000 people watching two teams play cricket. Whereas when you get up north, they're slightly more boisterous behind their behind their team so yeah it's, it that was really nice to experience that actually and to yeah even though during that headingly game it was on the reverse end I, I was on the receiving end of the stick from the crowd um all the other games and and especially the games at old trafford it was it was great to have that behind us and and yeah it was just a good upbeat good vibe about it and then i think yeah in the viewing figures and the engagement that people have had in the tournament i think that sort of classes it as a, as a success. It's interesting you say that because I, I mainly go to Lords for England test matches and obviously it's beautiful being at Lords and the whole day out's wonderful when you get to walk around, there's the history and stuff. But having also done Edgbaston and everywhere north of there for test matches as well, it's an entirely different day out. I mean, it's a stag do, some of them. It's more of a stag do than a cricket match, whereas Lords is very much about the cricket. You touched on the women's game there and like you said, the Oval team did rather well in the women's game, Daniel. Whenever we thought about the 100 before, I think it's gone probably better than anyone expected. I think we're all really honest with ourselves. But what it's done for the women's game is, is I mean, it's basically unmeasurable. Charlotte Edwards says the 100 has single-handedly changed women's cricket. And it really does feel that way. I mean, I, I have to admit, you know, I've, I've, I've got into the women's game over the last few years more and more. But this is probably the most women's cricket I've ever watched. I, in fact, because of the timings, I often found myself watching the women's game and then being out mm. in the evening and not seeing the men's games. So I probably saw more of the women's yeah. game, if anything. Uh, Dan, you're obviously very close to the women's game. You've, you've commentated on it now for a long time. You're a bit of an expert in that. But, I mean, seeing 17,000 watching the women play their final in the 100, what has it done for the game, do you think? Uh, time's going to tell on that, I'm afraid. I've got to give you a kind of mealy-mouthed answer because, look, we thought we, we thought we had this moment in 2017 when, mm. when England's women won the World Cup final. And... Then we got the KSL and things did improve a bit. And we would go to KSL finals day and go, this is pretty amazing, actually. There's 4,000 people here. But then the first day of the 100 happened and there was like, what was it, like 10, 11,000, something mad. And then Lords was regularly getting 14, 15. And then the Oval was responding with 14, 15. And there's been more people have come to see this tournament than any other tournament. That includes the Women's World T20 when 86,000 people turned up at the MCG for the final. So... This was continuously splendid for the women's game. You've got to say, well, people were buying tickets for two games and how many of them were coming to see just the women? If the women's tournament was standalone, how many would turn up? Mm. How much coverage would it get? You know, COVID meant that we were 
creating these double headers. I like to think that it's a bit, that there's, there's something in between that, mm. that something genuinely has happened. I, I think I mentioned it last week or the week before when Sophie Eccleston came out to bat at Old Trafford and she got a huge roar of approval because actually that crowd knew who Sophie Eccleston was. Mm. Now, with the best one in the world, people like me knew who Claire Taylor was and Isha Guha and what have you in, in 2010 with Charlotte Edwards, but the broader public didn't necessarily and they didn't get to play at these grounds. They didn't have that kind of audience actually chanting their names. It's been staggering. It's been really moving as well. And the women have produced some of the best games in the tournament and the side that won, obviously my side over the Invincibles, but they were brilliantly captained by Dunevan Niekerk. They had Alice Capsey in there, 16-year-old when she started the tournament, got a 50 at Lords. Uh, she was 17 by the time it ended. She lifted the trophy. It's just amazing for people like that. And I think, I think partly because it's free to air, partly because of the way the tournament was constructed, there was a, a bit of accidental boost to the women's game, which doesn't make it any less brilliant. It makes it fantastic serendipity, really. The key is, are they going to build on this? Is it going to be the same next year? Is it going to be the same hype next year? There ought to be more because we'll have Auss Aussie players hopefully coming over, like to May Lanning, Elise Perry. The standard's only going to get better. And just, I mean, just think about what it's like for people like Katie Levick, who's been playing domestic cricket for 12, 13 years, never getting near an England side, going out and playing at Lords in front of 12, 13,000 people. I mean, just that, is, uh, the beautiful stories that come out of it. And look, as I said, time will tell. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. It's not going to stop now. England's women have got three T20s and five ODIs coming up in, in September. And we need to keep pushing that case and get people to come and see those players that they've fallen in love with. You know, the likes of Sophia Dunkley and Nat Siver and Catherine Brunt, who are stars, you know, and they should be stars in this country. And I hope that will happen. But all we can do is keep pushing the case in it. We will see what's happened. I mean, whatever happens, there's an upward trajectory in the women's game that was happening before the 100. I feel like the 100's just taken yeah. it to, to another little level. But it was nice as well, like you say, that there was already names that people knew. Your Alex Hartley's in your Kate Cross is obviously friends of Zero Dutch Given. And that's Siva, you know, some very well-known names in there. But it's also some people, you know, I thought um, Lauren Bell and uh, Tash mm -hmm. Farron. So I always think Tash Farron is what my name would be if I was on pro evolution soccer where they can't afford the rights to your actual names, I would be I would be Tash Farron. She was absolutely incredible. But she took her wickets in the middle 50 balls at something stupid like 3.8. I mean, she was unbelievable. Yep. Um, so she's going to she's, she's go down in, she'll, she'll go down in history, Toad. Like, like all the people who, who broke records in that 100, like Tash Farron, who got like her 18 wickets, like Jamima Rodriguez in her 92, and Liam Livingston, and, you know, the person who bowled the most expensive five-ball set in the uh, in hundred who's only just um, um, only just uh, in the end Pat Brown tried to outdo me <laughs> I mean I, I, I would have and ironically <laughs> bowling from the same end as I was yeah, the, the bottom end the bottom end at Headingley yeah so you're now you're now complaining about the rugby stand end at Headingley that's the worst yeah. thing about cricket yeah, yeah. Don't you? <laughs> it is genuinely, yeah. Well, appreciate Pat if you're listening. Thank you for showing a bit of solidarity for our for our boy Finney here. Uh, Finney, what about you? I mean, playing in the tournament, it was kind of the usual suspects, kind of the big names you expected to have good tournaments in the men's game had really good tournaments. Moen Ali, Livingston, Jason Roy, uh, you name it. Uh, who stood out for you? Anyone that uh, really impressed you? 
Um, I loved watching Adam Milne bowl, actually, mm. um, just as a, a fast bowler or a guy I used to be able to bowl as fast as he did in this tournament. But it seemed like every time you watched him bowl, those first five or ten balls, however many he went, he'd only go for two or three runs off ten balls. And no one else, no other scene bowler, I don't think, in the tournament had quite that impact at both ends of the innings. So, yeah, for just being impressed and and having played in the tournament and realising how brutal it can be, for him to be as consistent to go at less than a run a ball, I think, for the entire tournament, I reckon he went at 0.8-something mm. per ball, which was by far the lowest in the tournament. Um, I think as a fast bowler who bowls 90 miles an hour, who literally one edge, and it runs away and it, and it disappears for four, um, I thought it was so impressive. Um, and yeah, I saw him I saw him a couple of nights ago, just randomly in a bar. And I told him that as well for about half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say, he's, he had a stop ball percentage of 52%, which was by an absolute mile the highest. I mean, no one is even remotely close to that. Um, how many jukes you had at this point? Because we've all been there where we've drunkenly had our arm around somebody and told them how brilliant they are way longer than they we're expecting to yeah, hear. Yeah, I think we're... it was probably along those lines. Yeah, probably <laughs> by the end of it, thinking, I wish this washed up old fuck would stop shouting in my ear. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. He, yeah, he was very friendly because I, I played against him a bit when um, when I was younger and I'd have, I played domestic New Zealand cricket and he'd have been there. And he was saying how he remembered watching me bowl back then. So we just had, yeah, we had a half an hour fast. Oh, I was loving. Really. Oh, so it was, cute, um, it was wonderful, it? yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was actually very, very cute. When we do Zero Ducks Given Merchandise, can we please get a T-shirt that says, I wish this washed up old fuck would stop talking in my ear? <laughs> <laughs> speaking, speaking of guys who aren't washed up old fucks, though, how are you, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's oh, the nicest thing Finney's ever said to you, yeah. It is, actually. It's quite sweet. Uh, Tim Old Mills, I mean... Yeah. We all know what Timar could do. He was signed on a big contract in the IPL. We know all that. But we also know what he's had to go through in order to, to get out on the pitch and actually play. And if he hasn't booked himself a place on the plane to the UAE for the T20 World Cups uh, finals, I'll be absolutely mm-hmm. staggered. Because he he added something to his game, which his age was superb. I mean, there was a, a big thing that Crickbiz did on him about how he essentially bowled either a fast bouncer or a short bouncer at the death. That was how he kept his figures low. But actually threw in a couple of wide slower balls as well. And just like the surprise quick one that wasn't quite as short. There was, there was a lot of variety to tomorrow's game. Really, really enjoyed watching him. I thought that he was superb. But I suppose no one's really going to look much further than Liam Livingston, are they? Because he was absurdly spectacular. I mean, that was some of the sixes he hit were of uh, an outrageous distance. He looked like at one point that he could hit a six at will. He was hitting the ball so cleanly. I mean, he hit way more six than anybody else in the tournament. Um, we're actually going to leave the 100 there, but I'm glad you brought up Leah Livingston because we're going to leave the 100 there, but it was a fantastic tournament. I said earlier on a few weeks ago, I was happy to eat humble pie and admit that I got it wrong. And I've had a few people tweet me who, because I talk about cricket a lot on Radio X and a lot of my listeners couldn't care less and tell me to stop going on about cricket. And I've had a lot of tweets over the last few weeks from people saying, Toby, what do you make of the 100? Me and my family love it. We never normally watch cricket. So anything that gets people watch, watching cricket has to be a, a good thing. So yeah, well done to everybody involved in the 100. It took a long time coming to the tournament after the crazy year we've had. Uh, but in the end, I don't think it could have really gone much better apart from the big names that were missing. But I do want to move on to the test team because there is a, another test match around the corner. Poor Joe Root. I mean, 
Mark Wood's now injured. He's got no Stokes, no Broad, no Archer, no Wokes. You name it. I mean, he's basically turning up to a sword fight with with a banana. I mean, and not an impressive banana at that. Uh, but I, I want to talk about Liam Livingston because I wanted to see his name on that test team sheet. I just feel like I just was watching him bat, and he. I, I just thought he's he's just really good. White ball, red ball, whatever. I I, I thought a bit like when Kevin Peterson first got into England team, they put him in the the one day team, and he went and scored all those runs in South Africa and made himself basically impossible not to pick for the upcoming Ashes series. I feel like Livingston, the bigger the occasion, the better the bowling. I feel like he'll fancy it. And I, 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 don't, I, I feel like I talked about this last week. We, we pigeonhole players as, oh, he's a white ball player. But Rohit Sharma's pretty damn good. Rishabh Pant's pretty damn good. If we never give him a chance and never at least try and turn them into Red Bull players, then we're never going to. Finney, am I, am I talking up my arse as always? Or do you reckon there's an argument for, for giving him a go at some point? No, I think first and foremost that he's actually played a decent amount of first-class cricket, um, which, even though it's probably not been recently, um, his record in first-class cricket, I think, without looking at, would actually be very, very good. So then mm. there is a certain pedigree in four-day cricket um, there already. I think that you do take confidence from performances against good players on big stages, um, and you look at someone like Joss Butler, who um, for a long time was sort of regarded as a white ball, not a specialist, but to be a lot better in the white ball stuff. He takes that confidence into the test match arena and everyone can see how good a player he is um, across formats. I think the important thing, if you're going to select someone um, to play a counter-attacking role like that, I think it's important that you get their role in the team correct um, because... I think we've tried it a few times with people who bat in the top three. And if you think someone who comes out and plays that aggressive is the answer to the problems within the top three, then you're looking or you're barking up the wrong tree and you're setting mm. him up to fail. Whereas if you want him to come and bat five, six or seven and play a counter-attacking, counter-punching role or to sort of nail the sword or stick the sword in the belly to finish the team off, then I think that would suit him a lot, lot more and allow him the freedom to be able to play with the way that we've seen him play over the last few months, and especially the last few months. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's a tricky balance to have, but expecting him to be the answer to, to what's going on in the top order, I think is probably the wrong, the wrong thing. But I do think it'd be, I do think it'd be very, very disgusting to bowl to in Test Match Cricket. Yeah, I just, with that old cliche of would the opposition like to see his name on the team sheet? And I just think, Absolutely bloody not at the moment. Uh, Norcross, you're you're old and old fashioned. You'll you'll mm. be one. To, you, you just like blokes that have a strike rate of about nineteen in Test cricket. Yeah. So where where do you stand, Livingston? I'm I'm never going to well, shut up about this, by the way, until he's in the team. Yeah, well, I, well, I'm going to agree with Philly that he's not the answer to the problem in the top three, no. and you've got yeah. you've got Root at four. Bairstow's actually looked like he's found a bit of form. I mean, you know, Bairstow's an absolute monster in white ball cricket, just like Livingston actually, mm. uh, and in fifty over cricket. An even more remarkable monster, and he does it at the top of the order. So he's if you can get Bairstow into form, and he's getting into form, then he's obviously going to play at five. Within England's current situation, they need a keeper, and they need Moeen Ali as the ex, as, as the all-rounder because they've lost Stokes. So they've got to get a spinner in there somehow, and he's got to be able to bat. So it's obviously got to be Moeen, and he's doing well. So I don't see where Livingston fits in this team. Um, the next batter to come in, in my view, not just because I'm sorry, man, but because all the stats tell you it, and because all your eyesight tells you it as well, actually, is Ollie Pope. He is a test match batter. 
Now, he might. the idea is, in the future, three or four years' time, he is your number three. But unfortunately, batters are a bit weird, aren't they? They insist on coming into the test team at six. People like Ian Bell insist on coming into the test team at six, even though they're absolutely fantastic and should be at number three. But your top three tend to be weirdos. And, <laughs> um, I mean, they just basically do, don't they? I mean, that's, you've got your, your Trot, Strauss, Cook. I mean, you couldn't get weirder than that, all of them in their <laughs> own different ways. So that's that's probably England's best top three in living memory. Yeah. And, uh, and Livingston isn't that kind of a weirdo. So... Look, I don't know where Livingston fits into England's plans. I think if you have Stokes, it makes it even more difficult. I suppose you could imagine Stokes and Livingston at five and six, with Butler at seven, and you've got with you know from Root to Butler, you've got one of the most remarkably beautiful sites in in modern cricket. And if you could actually get Chris Wokes back out of the bloody park, you'd have a, an unbelievable number eight to boot. Yeah. And that's where England's batting woes come. England, it's not in, only England, by the way. Let's be really clear. Top threes around the world have struggled in England for the last seven or eight years. In the, the last time England played India in this country, 2018, neither Indian opener had scored a 50 score until they got to the Oval in the last test. So... You know, the ball moves around. It's very difficult. It's a piece to piss for bowlers in this country. It's a miracle. Oh, well, hold on. As what, miserable what as it currently is. No, you no, know, no. They get given this dark no. red ball with no. perfect conditions and, you know, he screws it up. It's is not it awful. possible to mute him here or not? <laughs> <laughs> what, what I think is what I can ascertain from what you're saying there is the fact that from about four or five years ago, before that, the wickets were very flat and hard to take wickets on. But after that point, around 2017, then um, it's been very easy to take wickets since then. So that would correlate with me actually having played in an era when it was incredibly hard to oh, take wickets yeah. as a seam bowler. <laughs> and do you know what? I've seen some reruns on TV of test matches that I played in or from that era. And the wickets, look they just look like white sheets of paper with no grass on them. And then, yeah, you look up to a test match now. miserable. <laughs> it's up to a test match now. It's, you don't see, you don't know which one you're playing on. They're just which way everyone's got white lines on it. Are you sure you haven't retired? You sound you sound properly bitter and miserable already. Yeah, of course. Look, it's true. But what, what I... I might say to you is have you thought of trying to adapting to bowling on really bad wickets? Because you know, you could be an absolute nightmare on them. We'll go full Darren Stevens. You are trying to bowl too quickly, Philly. Except you, I actually you should it. bowl from a standing start. Yeah, just yeah. go little, yeah. little bananas, little wobblers. I mean, That's it's right. interesting though because because actually we... dangerous bananas on this occasion, rather than the apparently undangerous banana that <laughs> yeah, is but... England's England's bowling attack consisting of <laughs> James Anderson and Ollie Robinson. I mean, it's not the worst banana big, I've yeah, ever seen. Yeah, exactly. One of them's got six hundred and twenty-six <laughs> bloody wickets. <laughs> Maybe not as brown and mouldy as I described it. Yeah. But, uh... But I mean, it's interesting there, Norcross, because you and I—I I mean, we have all the all the sports channels that you can possibly imagine, and, and we watch any cricket that's on TV. But I've not seen many reruns of Test matches recently, so that sounds an awful lot to me. Like Stephen Finn is going out and searching his old Test Good matches, point. and I bet showing them to his poor his poor misses. Just showing. No, I'll tell you what has happened. <laughs> I spent time in the Manchester Originals bubble with, with Kate Cross and Alex Hartley. Right. And they had me on their podcast. And one of the things that came up was, who was your first Ashes wicket? And Simon Katic was my first Ashes wicket, who was the coach of the Manchester Originals. Of course. Um, so they went digging and someone found the footage from 
that wicket against Australia in Brisbane, and it looked like the flattest wicket that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, in fairness, very good to take six for. It was it was a long <laughs> half volley that he plinked back to you and you caught. No, because he doesn't catch. move Just because you had to you bend to down a bit. Look, you say you know the game, but you don't because you have to follow the pull up. <laughs> to Simon Katic, he doesn't move his feet, so you had to bowl that much fuller to make it into a good length ball. So actually, it was unbelievably skillful. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, with our net, uh, with our net session still at the back of my mind, Finney, I thought it was an excellent piece of bowling. No, well, I'll no. be testing out the middle of the wicket to you, mate. They won't be that full. <laughs> I don't move my feet either. Can't you bowl full to me? Because I, I don't care about getting you out. I just care about hurting you. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Enough. No, I know you're not. That's the saddest, <laughs> right? That's the saddest part. Uh, but I want to bring up one other person that definitely is coming back into the team. Um, and it's Milan, who is back in. And um, we talked to him about him a bit on this podcast before. Um, I, it's a weird one now because he's kind of being heralded as, oh, thank God, Milan's back in. But we shouldn't forget that he had a good old stint in the Test team and he struggled in England. He did very well abroad, but he struggled here in, in the UK. Um, but he's back in with a lot of expectation on him. But it was a few years ago and I feel like he's probably got a lot of confidence because in that time he's become the number one ranked T20 batsman in the world. I know it's a completely different format, but that must do anyone's self-esteem and confidence a boost. Finney, you know him better than most. How do you reckon he is right now looking forward to his, his England recall? Nervous, excited, uh, more prepared now than he was last time? You'd say a mixture of the two, definitely. Um, definitely nervous, because I think whenever you're recalled to a team, um, there's a certain degree of apprehension around it uh, before you get there. But I think he'll be very excited as well, because I think he knows he's in the form of his life. I think you can see the way that he has confidence in the shorter formats. I think the innings that he has played for Yorkshire this year, I think he got 199 in one of them, and he might have got 100 in another one as well. So he, he is in unbelievable form. And actually one of the things that batsmen are very lucky with, sometimes as bowlers, as you get into your mid-30s, you lose pace, or in fact all the time, unless you're a freak like Anderson, you lose pace and you lose zip and you try and find ways to survive sometimes. And we've seen players like Adam Voges, Chris Rogers um, come to test cricket late. Even Andrew Strauss was a relative latecomer to test match cricket when he came. But the advantage of that, mm. Mike Hussey, mm. the advantage of that is you know your game and mm. you know how to accumulate runs. And I think that that's the advantage that he will have. Confidence plus that will mean that I think it's a pretty good selection. Yeah, this is this is absolutely right. And it's one of the things that England, have they've been weird with their selectoral policy because for years they didn't pick anyone young. And then when they did pick Hameen and they soon after picked Sam Curran and they picked Zach Crawley, they suddenly had all these players who were like being picked before they were 21, which they'd never done before. They'd never taken ridiculously young players. That wasn't what, what England did. Pakistan did that. They always used to put young players into their side. Whereas what we clearly need and what we clearly have a problem with is batting. And as Binny says, batting is something that you, you grow into. You grow into your style. You know, and Milan, even Vince, you know, people go, oh, no, not Vince again. Well, Vince has continued to play first-class cricket. He, he is a batter. He knows how to bat. And you put him back inside, it's a, a totally different thing, really, from nurturing a young bowler. And we've been doing it. We did it with Pope. We brought him into the side arguably slightly too early. And I think actually going in this direction, I don't. the problem for England is that you don't quite know. 
after those two, what are you looking at? Sam Northeast, Joe Clark, perhaps, who's played yeah, a lot of Joe Clark's cricket. very talented. I um yeah. I, I was with him at Manchester. Yeah, he's extraordinarily talented. But I, I think the that you have room for one of those younger guys in a lineup to be nurtured by the older guys. Look at Joe Root coming into the team with mm. Peterson, Trot, Cook and growing with those guys and what that's done to him because he could be protected at six or five for a while. I mm. think the thing that's difficult is throwing someone who is very talented like a Zach Crawley, but is he as prodigiously talented as a young Joe Root was? I'm not 100% sure about that. And throwing him to the walls at the top of the order early on can have the opposite effect. You talk about getting games and getting experience into players, but if that experience becomes scarring, then that's a bad thing for down the road. So, yeah, I think there's a definitely a very fine balance. And I think one thing that maybe the selectors in the last few years haven't got right is that recognising, realising who you think the next person is or, or the next really good player and trying to get them in and around more experienced or slightly more experienced guys. But arguably, we've not had been blessed with a test match batting order that's been settled, like the one that I was lucky enough to play with. But yeah, I think you have to be sensible with your selection sometimes. Just one quick thing on that. I mean, just put it into context, what Steve's talking about there. Strauss, Cook, Bell, Peterson, Pryor, for that matter, Trot, Trot. all averaged over 40 in test mm-hmm. cricket. All of them. Joe Root is the last person to come into the England team, which he did in 2012, and average over 40. The last person in nine years. That is what we're trying to deal with here when we're trying to work out the conundrum of who should go out to bat. And that's what selectors are doing. And they've taken the line, let's take the most prodigiously talented youngsters and build them up through Test cricket. And I think what we all agree is that you can do that with one or two. But you've Actually, someone like David, David Milan, I mean, it's too late for Hildreth, but maybe Hildreth should have been playing three or four yeah. years ago. You know, And the biggest, the biggest problem that England have had, which is really hard to talk about, is James Taylor. Actually, James Taylor mm. was on the cusp of making it, was really, really finding his feet in the England team when he had his heart troubles. And you imagine if James Taylor had been playing all this time, how different that middle order would look. And how many bloody good short leg catches there would have been as well over the last few years. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I should mention as well, one name that we've kicked around a few times here, Ollie Pope. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, I, I know Norcross, you know, waxes lyrical about oh. him because of his Surrey connection, but genuinely Ollie Pope looked like, oh great, we found a bloke who can score runs in Test cricket. He's had two big injuries, really unfortunate injuries, but both on his shoulder, deep, diving on the outfield fielding. So that is a guy who's trying to learn Test cricket to then take two two huge chunks out of his career is a massive problem, isn't it? Oh, you're looking at me confused, Norcross, but that's, that's right. No, 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 no. No, it is. No, no. Actually, what I was confused about was that I seemed to be in reverse when I looked at myself on the screen there on Zoom. <laughs> and uh, I was going, hang on, my heart Norcross can't be on my right hand staring at me as I was saying this, touching <laughs> both his shoulders. And I was going, what, what's Norcross trying to signal to me yeah. here? Um, no, but I mean, Ollie Pope... He, look, yeah, he looked like right. he was going to be the next, you know. I mean, we obviously I think we he's do the classic he's... thing of building up. I do. I think he there's a there's he looks more like he could score test runs than the others, even though he's had a lean yeah. spell. But he's just yeah. when he's been on the cusp of doing something great, um, he's taking. You, you time don't, out you don't, Toby. You don't average sixty in mm. thirty-five first-class games and more, and 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 not be really damn good. 
he's had a whole series of bits of misfortune, hasn't he? He's had uh, bad injuries. He's not been brilliantly uh, dealt with. He kept wicket in one game for England. I mean, that's how mad it's been. <laughs> the, things, the things that, that he's been sort of forced to do. And these are very different introductions to test cricket from people are used to doing, and they have to adapt quickly. And he's tried to change his technique. He's tried to um, deal with the fact that a lot of bowlers nowadays are really attacking the stumps. And he's done that by going on to off stump and taking his guard. And a few England players have done that. And it, it doesn't feel quite right. And I'm sure it'll probably, it's, I sound like a doting parent now, he'll grow out of it. <laughs> go back to, to playing properly but, you know it, it, that's obviously ridiculous and absurd but there's an element of truth in it as well is what I mean there's, there's, uh, he's going to grow into himself and his game and he'll be a terrific player but as Stephen says we do not want to leave them with scarring early on in a, in a career that could be brilliant you know, yeah. we want to give them the best framework in which to make the best of their talent yeah, and I think the important thing is that if these guys do get dropped now, like Sibley's just been dropped, you know, there's that there's there's going to be an open door for them years that, you know, we saw with Graham Swan, he wasn't ready, he was too young, probably a bit too immature as well, but he came back and had an incredible career um, towards the end of his career. So especially with batsmen, like Finney said, these, this isn't game over for these guys if they do get promoted into England team young and, and, and not set the world on fire. They can go back to county cricket, score some runs and get recalled in the future. Uh, one other person who looks like he's going to get his big opportunity as well is uh, Mahmood, Stephen Finn's doppelganger. We assume, I don't know, but I assume he's going to play. He seems the obvious replacement for Mark Wood. Finney, the more I watched Mahmood in the 100, the more I realised that you two are identical. And he's a good looking well, man, isn't he? Well, you know, it depends if, if you're into that kind of thing, I guess. But uh, He can grow a proper beard though and I can't. So. Yeah, you're, yours only. And he's you. about 10 years younger than me. But apart from that, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I was thinking he looks so much like you that if you do want to play for him again, you could probably just, we could all, me and Norcross could kidnap him and you could walk onto the pitch on Wednesday and uh, and roll back the years. They'll be wondering why Mahmood's bowling at about 68 miles an hour, but still. <laughs> I've got nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I... I was fascinated by his answer until you said 68 miles per hour and then I knew what was going to come down. <laughs> I nearly asked him an intelligent cricketing question yeah. and then I decided that I'm not to. Well, yeah. Uh, also, I can't, I can't believe Finney does actually want to go out and bowl at Pujara and Kohli and Rahane and Rohit Sharma and Rishabh I'm quite happy watching. And Jadeja yeah. and Ashwin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, if I was you, I'd probably do the same. Uh, anyway, we are looking forward to the test match and let's not forget England were 1-0 down to India not many years ago at home and turned the series around to 1-3-1. So it's not over. Uh, one thing I do want to talk about, and, uh, you know, serious, which is sometimes a surprise for us, but very serious, actually, is that Joe Root has confirmed the England team are going to wear anti-discrimination T-shirts and observe a moment of unity ahead of the third LV insurance test against India, as has been their custom in recent times. He also talked about Azim Rafiq. So if you don't know about this story, if you haven't heard any, anything about this at all, Azim Rafiq played for Yorkshire in two stints. And over the last couple of years, He's been very honest and very brave, actually, talking about some of the racism that he experienced at Yorkshire. And he's spoken about things that he witnessed. And this week, Yorkshire put out a statement and they issued profound apologies for inappropriate behaviour. That was the statement. And Azim Rafiq, quite rightly, I think, said it wasn't good enough because calling racism inappropriate behaviour is, is really downplaying the issue. Now, fair play to Joe Root, as he so often does. He was brilliant in dealing with it. He said, as a former teammate and friend, it's hard to see Azim hurting as he is. 
more than anything, it just shows that there is a lot of work that we have to do in the game. It is a societal issue, in my opinion. We have seen it in other sports. We've seen it in other areas. As a sport, we've got to keep trying to find ways of making sure this isn't a conversation that keeps happening. We've got to find ways of creating more opportunities and making our game more diverse and educating better. And we opened the podcast talking about the 100, which I think has done a lot for women in the game of cricket. It, we probably still have a way to go with, with black and Asian people in the game of cricket, which sounds crazy because, you know, we're playing India right now, a country of a billion people that are probably the best in the world at cricket consistently. Um, and we, me and Norcross have all played, played club cricket and Stephen Pind has played, obviously, a much higher standard of cricket. And it's impossible to play the sport without sharing a dressing room with guys from every single walk of life. It is quite a multicultural sport, but clearly it still has some way to go. Um, Norcross, what, what did you make of, first of all, the, the Yorkshire statement and also Azim Rafiq's you know, reaction to it? Well, I thought the Yorkshire statement was mired in legalese and I understand why. It's an internal report and it has massive HR ramifications. All of that is why the whole way it's been done actually is unsatisfactory because people have been led to believe that they're going to get a full and open report about Azim's allegations. And what actually happens is you get into the technical weeds of it. And what's happening is what I've just said. It's Yorkshire's internal report on allegations made or, or complaints made by an employee. So you know, we've got to be clear that this thing is not going to give us what it is that we want, which is, I think what we want is to lance the wound. I've been reading Why We Kneel, How We Rise by Michael Holding. And it's a truly brilliant book, but it reminds you of the micro racisms that happen in all walks of life all the time. You talked about how we play club cricket and share dressing rooms with people from Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi backgrounds, whatever. I captained the side. And it's crucial that, that you know, I was captain because we took on this team of basically brilliantly talented local Pakistani English cricketers in Tuti. And they didn't want they didn't want their captain to be captain. They wanted me to be captain because they were going to go and play in Surrey Championship against a bunch of teams that are that are really not part of their experience. You know, they're they're basically white clubs. I'm not saying those clubs are racist, but they are what they are, you know. They've been brought up in Surrey, created in Surrey and run by white men in Surrey. Nothing wrong with that intrinsically. And then we would play these games and we would we were in the first division of the third 11. And actually, when you get into the Premier League, which we did, because we got promoted, it's quite difficult because all the former first 11 players in their 40s all go down to the threes and they go down to the twos. So you're playing against really good sides. And this was oh, 10, 11 years ago now. And I remember that our team was very vocal in the way that it used to appeal and it used to be very passionate about the way they played. Um, they would express disappointment when the umpire didn't give them the result that they wanted for. But they, all they did was, you know, kick the turf, go, ah, whatever. The number of letters that I had to field from teams complaining about the spirit in which we played the game was indicative that actually, you know, we do have a problem at, at all levels of cricket, that we're not inclusive enough to understand that people play the game in different ways. They mm. just have different ways of being. You know, when the Pakistan side came last year, they were very vocal on the pitch. And I know some people found that quite difficult to deal with and thought that this was not the way you play cricket. Well, it's the way Pakistanis play cricket. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think actually 
that's one really crucial part of the issues that English cricket has to deal with. And it's not just the way that it's always been. If you're going to make it inclusive, you can't just filter it all the way through out of the lens of white men, many of whom went to public school. That's a crucial part of it. The second part of it is how, how far do we want to go into the cultures of teams and and find scapegoats for it because when you're in a team culture an individual behaves suddenly their behavior is slightly constrained by that team culture or, and it's directed by that team culture it doesn't make it right of course it doesn't but it does mean that the people who have been doing those things and mark voucher has been talking about it in south africa actually lately and it makes for very uncomfortable reading that that south african team had a culture of um, what he's described as racism and feeling those deep apologies for them. It's a very complicated situation that we find ourselves in where people get, mm. I guess what we need to do is be furnished with as much information as possible. And as Michael says in his book, we need to be educated and we need to understand. You know, white people need to understand that what looks like a throwaway team culture line is a hurtful piece of racism to them. And I don't think that necessarily they do realise that people. You know, the people working and living and existing in cricket, or at least they certainly didn't. So, you know, bringing that out into the open so that we can become better is what I hope this will do. I'm not sure that this report's going to do that because, as I say, it's an internal Yorkshire County Cricket Club report, which has been nearly a year in the making and has still not come out. And it's, I mean, that's one thing that does need to happen. And Ian Watmore, ECB's chair, has asked that he gets to see the report because they're taking that side of it seriously. So look, it's a story that will unfold over time, isn't it? Yeah, and, and also we can't say too much until until we do find all the findings as well. But, um, it, you know, it's one thing, as you were talking there, that I've never really thought about this before. And there's been a lot of talk about sort of un, unintentional racism over the last few years, sort of like with journalism in a certain way that journalists depict, you know, maybe a black player over a white player in football, for example, if he's... Um, if he's a white player who never runs with the ball, he's elegant, he's classy. And if he's a black player who doesn't run with the ball, he's lazy. And, I, and, and that is a thing that's been spoken about in recent years. And journalists have held their hands up and gone, Archie, maybe we are guilty of that. And it's interesting, as you were saying that, you talked about the appealing and, and you know, Asian teams appealing in club cricket. And having played a lot of club cricket, I was thinking as you were saying that, the classic stereotypes you always have whenever you play a team that's a largely Asian team is they'll appeal for everything. They've got a dodgy umpire. Normally that there's a bloke who, who chucks it uh, and normally that they'll all slog when they come out to bat. And that is genuine. But then I think about it, as you were saying that, I went, hang on a second. I went, well, well actually, every, every bowler I know appeals for everything and every wicketkeeper I know appeals for everything. Every umpire gives crap decisions, especially at club cricket. And my top six throw away their wicket every single week. So, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and if a bloke bowls off the, you know, a wrong foot or has a bit of a slightly bent arm and, and he's white, it's just seen as always a bit of an awkward bowler. He's got a weird action. But as soon as an Asian guy does it, it's chucking. And I only thought about that as you mentioned that there. So that's, you know, and that's an example of the sort of maybe ingrained unintentional racism that does exist in the game. Uh, Finney, I want to talk to you because you would have played against Azim and, and, you know, you'd have spent time with him on a cricket pitch and off a cricket pitch as well, I imagine. And it can't be, he's, he's, he's a fair play to him. It would be easy for him to walk away from this. His life would be easier. It'd be quieter. He even said this week, he goes, I owe it to the people that are still going through this around the world. To, to carry on, but it must it must be tough as a fellow professional to to watch. He's clearly you know he's clearly distraught and upset by everything. 
yeah, I think it's it's very difficult to watch someone have to have to experience those things over the course of their career and still be a bloody good professional cricketer with this all going on. Um, and I think that you have to say that it's very brave and courageous, the fact that he is not backing down, the fact that he is passionate about this. I think one highlights his strength of character, but two also how important it is for us as a sport to be able to go and move on after this. I think it's important that people see the report so that we can learn as a society, not just cricket, but as a society as well, we can learn from the mistakes and from that disgusting behaviour. And so we can help make this sport more inclusive and, and, and you can just help everyone enjoy it on a level playing field. And I think that cricket, especially as we've seen with the ODI side, um, the franchise sides that are put together, the multiculturalism is what makes cricket an amazing sport. I've loved playing with guys from other cultures and the fact that they could feel you know, discriminated against within a team that you're playing in, it makes me really sad. So I think the, the quicker the time is that we can go from, from now to there being nothing like that in our game and um, we'll make it a better place for everyone. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, well, I'm sure that won't be the, the last we hear of that. And obviously, as it develops over the next few weeks and months, we'll, we'll come back to that at some point. Very quickly, guys, because we, we are pretty much over time. But there's a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, that uh, Ian Botham has been announced he's going to be part of a trade envoy to Australia. Um, now, now, I don't know too much about international trade deals, which may shock you both. But uh, aren't you meant to be building bridges and building relationships? Why are we sending a guy that terrorised the Australians for about 15 years? Surely they hate him. Send somebody who was crap. Send anyone from the 90s. Why are we sending the one guy that single-handedly won a series against them? They're not going to trade with me and both of them. They'll trade with pretty much anyone that opened the batting in the 90s, surely. Well, yeah, I mean, Ian Chappell won't, and presumably he won't be part of the trade delegation. That's my guess, you know. Actually, he's got quite a good reputation in Australia because they, they sort of see him as Australian, which, I mean, I don't know what that tells you about Beefy uh, or, or indeed Australian. I, I leave you all to speculate on what that may mean. Um, so I don't know. I think, look, all I'm reminded of is uh, an article that Rick Marks wrote. He did a... a the question and answer session with Beefy in uh, November 2020 after he'd been made a Lord. Uh, not Vic, obviously, although he should be, uh, Beefy. And Beefy was talking about how he expected to, you know, just pop in every now and then and talk about sport and the countryside because those are the only two things he knows. Certainly, obviously, there's no point in me being there when they're discussing trade deals with Japan, or his exact words. But it turns out that trade deals with Australia are different from trade deals with Japan. And because... He scored 138 at Brisbane uh, in 1986-7. That's going to qualify him for it. I just can't wait for him to sit in the first meeting and say, look, you're wrong because how many wickets did you take? Because that's essentially what BP <laughs> says to, to, to any conversation you have with him. You know, even things like how to pronounce someone's name. How many test wickets did you take? So <laughs> He must hate it. <laughs> he must hate being in conversations with Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad. He's got nothing... Poor guy. I don't think he sees them much, no. Right, yeah, I, I'd, I'd avoid them. I'd avoid them like the plague. And one final thing, let's finish on a very positive note. Uh, it was uh, pretty scary last week. You may have seen the news about former New Zealand brilliant all-rounder Chris Cairns. Well, he has undergone emergency surgery in Sydney for a heart problem. 
uh, after suffering what's been described as a major medical event. However, he is off life support and he is recovering in hospital, which is such lovely news. And uh, I hope that Chris continues to recover and I hope uh, his friends and family are doing okay. But just very quickly, serious cricketer Chris Cairns winning Stephen Finn. Did your, your careers slightly cross paths towards the end or you, no. you would have missed him? I'm not I always that forget, old, mate. Yeah, like I always me. forget how old you are, to be honest with you. But just like me, then you would have grown up watching Chris Cairns, having a slog and taking lots of wickets, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I, even then he might have been. I don't remember that much of him, to be honest. I, maybe the odd series here in the UK that I watched. Um, but yeah, when you watch replays and stuff, he was a phenomenal cricketer and one of the first real great cricketers from New Zealand, wasn't he? So yeah, hope hope he gets well. Uh, Norcross, Fet, Finney, uh, I'm going to love and leave you because I should probably stop neglecting my much better half. Seeing as we're it's on still holiday. light. It's still light where you are. Look I know. At it. It's I dark know. here. It's still it's light in Bergen. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Are there, are there, are there, are there sort of armed bears <laughs> in the streets? It's how uh, I always imagine Norway. Well, there's not at the moment, but uh, because of COVID, it's a midnight curfew here. So we've got to go and squeeze our drinking in very, very quickly. We've got about two and a half hours to get levered before we get kicked out of every bar. So, uh, so we're going to love and leave you. But lovely to see you, chaps. We'll see you next week when England will be utilised in the Test Series. Cheers, chaps. Cheers. <laughs> See ya. Sports Social Podcast Network.